welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. The part that I, I enjoyed the most about being an engineer was having a challenge, having a problem to solve, and then coming up with some kind of a creative way to, to solve that problem. <clears throat> and, um, and, and the real fun, though, was to solve it in an elegant way. You see, there's, there's countless ways to solve any kind of problem, but not all solutions are equal. Not all solutions are the same to those problems. So, for example, suppose you have a rodent problem. And, and so you think, well, I know how to solve this rodent problem. We'll, we'll burn the house down. And you do. <clears throat> and you burn the house down, satisfying your desires of a pyromaniac, which is always helpful and good and fun. Uh, eliminates the rodents, agreed? But also eliminates your home. So that's not a great solution because now that solution causes more problems. Then you might think, well, I, I come up with a complex solution. One that is using AI and computers and technology and, and cameras connected to the AI program to use visual tracking to find the, the rodents. And then once spotted and identified a rodent, you have lasers throughout the house to shoot and kill them. That is, an, that is a pretty impressive solution. It would get rid of the rodents, but it's very expensive, very complex. Although I'm told they've actually developed such a system for mosquitoes, which is kind of crazy. But then there is the, the pinnacle of solutions, the one that's effective, the one that isn't too, uh, uh, too costly, but the one that is simple. And that is the mousetrap. The simple spring-loaded, put a little piece of cheese there to spring and catch the, the mouse and get rid of it. And it's so elegant. It's so beautiful because of its simplicity. And so <clears throat> that's really what, what we're always striving for as an engineer is you want to find that simple solution. In fact, they developed an acronym, a, a method towards solving it. It's called the KISS principle. Keep it simple. <laughs> Stupid. I was going to say silly because we're Christians, but yeah, keep it simple. Stupid, right? Keep it simple, silly, right? And, and I think that's, that's very appropriate and very proper when it comes to, to things like solving any kind of you know, regular problems. But it's also really critical to understanding our relationship with Jesus. Because the reality is, I think we have a tendency towards complexity. We have a tendency to, to making things more difficult than they need to be. In fact, when I think about the, the, the problems that I get into, I've often got into them because I've overthought things too much, because I've overcomplicated things too much. I start to, to get in my own head and I start thinking about what I think others are thinking about me. And so I'm analyzing every, everything that's going on. Or, or I begin to analyze their motives. And I begin to assume what their motives are. I remember growing up as a kid, um, I was getting out of the car, and my brother was getting out before me. And, and he got out, and he, he just sort of let the door close, and it closed on my, on my leg. And as a kid, I, was, I would have sworn that my brother did it on purpose. Now, if you knew Paul, you would understand. You would agree with me. But... In hindsight, a little bit of maturity, it just accidentally swung. But as that little child, I assumed his motives. And so we get into trouble that way. Or we might get into trouble thinking about, you know, do I belong somewhere? 
Or how do I write this email? And I just rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Or, or I might get into trouble trying to protect myself from what might happen in the future and try to take control and, and, and try to protect myself from any kind of hurts. Or I might get trapped overthinking my past, overthinking the hurts and the wounds that I've experienced. And I kind of trap myself in the past, in essence. But maybe the most dangerous place of where we overthink things is in our relationship with Jesus. And we take something that is so beautiful and so simple as our relationship with Jesus and we overcomplicate it. We add all kinds of things to it. And in that complexity, we hinder the beauty of that relationship. And we end up missing out on the, the promises of joy and peace and rest and power, and life, all those things that are promised to us, we, we, we miss out on it because we take something that's as beautiful as Jesus plus nothing, and we make it Jesus plus my efforts, Jesus plus what I do, Jesus plus me living a clean and moral life, or, or Jesus plus me tithing or, or giving faithfully, or Jesus plus having a perfect attendance, or all the different things that you might come up with. And we take something so beautiful which is about Jesus and what he has done and what he has accomplished on the cross for you and I, to you and I, and now through you and I. And we make it so complex, so difficult, we miss out on that power. And so that's really what this passage is going to be about this morning. So if you got your Bibles in 2 Corinthians 11, you can read with me in verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and teaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully." Let's pray. Father, we want to make it simple. Because when we make it simple, we see you. And we don't add anything, any kind of extra stuff to the gospel that just shrouds you. And so make it simple for us, Lord Jesus. As we, we're going to trust you as best we know how this morning to understand this incredible passage of what Paul is offering to us in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, the four verses have a real simple outline this morning. And in verse one, what Paul's going to do is he's basically setting up uh, what's going to happen in the, in the rest of the chapter, even into a bit of chapter 12 as well. And he says here that I wish you would bear with me, that you would tolerate with me as I go a little bit foolish, he says. So this idea here of being foolish, so this foolishness is really referenced earlier in chapter 10, and I think it's verse 12, where he talks about those who compare themselves with others are fools. It's foolish to compare yourself. And so he's going to do that beginning in verse 5. He's going to make some comparisons because he knows that's what's important to these Corinthians. And so he's going to kind of play their game. He's going to kind of meet them where they're at to kind of show to them that that they're they're uh, their idea or that what's happened in terms of jettisoning Paul to the side isn't, isn't healthy. It isn't good. So he's going to do that beginning in verse five, but verses two, three, and four are really setting up that heart. So in verse two, we're going to see he's expressing his heart for the Corinthians. 
Verse three is going to express the concern he has for these Corinthians. And verse four is going to be why he has the concern. So like I said, a very simple outline. So verse two, he says, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you, I gave you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Remember we said last week that, that I don't own you. I don't possess you as one of the pastors here at New Life. That, that you are part of the church, not a church, the church. And you belong to Jesus. He's the one that bought you with a price. We didn't. And so we get, to, we get to love on you. We get to be a shepherd to you. And we get to teach you and care for you. But because we want to present you to Jesus. We want to offer you to Jesus. And we don't want to add anything to that. We don't want to bog you down, which is that idea of this, this purity of a virgin. That's what we're offering to because you belong to Jesus. You're married to Jesus. But what was interesting, what, what kind of struck me as he was, as he was uh, talking about this, is he's sharing his heart. And, and I went through the, the, the book, 2 Corinthians, and I started to count the number of times up to this point that he was sharing his heart. They he went out of his way to say to these people, this is my heart for you. And I counted that this is at least the fifth time, at least the fifth time that he says, this is my heart for you. Why so many provisos? Why so many? Why so careful? Why so guarded? Is because he knows how hurt they are. He knows the breakdown in the relationship between the two. And he knows that if they, if they miss his heart, then they won't trust him. And if they won't trust him, they can't receive from him. And so he's wanting to make sure that they trust his heart so they're able to receive, so they're able to experience the love that he's offering to them. And so one of the great passages that, that kind of shows this is, you don't have to turn to it, but 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 13, he wrote to them, our mouth was spoken freely to you. O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, I speak to you as children, open wide to us also. He's saying, we're not holding back. You're not receiving. You're not taking hold of. And so our heart, heart's open to you. And all we're asking is that your heart be open to us. And he's stressing that because it's so critical that they don't mistrust and miss on what he's got. Because that's what's happened. That's been the breakdown in the relationship. That these, these false apostles, these critics of Paul, have caused mistrust. They've sowed these seeds of distrust. But now we come to verse 3. And I think verse 3 is really the heart of this passage. And he says, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray for the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. See, his concern here is that, that Satan, the serpent, is going to lead their minds astray. It's interesting, I, I, I talk to people and they, they often say to me that, that they, they know it up here, the problem is they don't know it in here in their heart. And they say, well, that's the challenge, right? Going from the head to the heart. I want to challenge you a little bit. I think it's, I think it's a different route. See, what happened to our heart at salvation? Replaced. You were replaced. You were given a new heart. And that new heart now houses Jesus himself and the person of the Holy Spirit. So in your heart is truth. And really what needs to happen is the truth that is in our heart needs to get to our our minds. And the problem is in our minds, we believe a lot of contradictory things. We believe certain things that are true and then other things that are not true and yet they are in opposition to one another. 
And yet we, we hold to both. Maybe not realizing it even. For example, we, we believe God loves us. We, provide, we believe that he'll protect us and provide for us. And yet, we also struggle with the idea that I need to fix it. I need to look after myself. It's up to me. And so we, we believe these two very opposing ideas in our mind. What we're really saying is, say, I got to get it from the mind to my heart. We really want to say, I want to feel it. And so I want to challenge you a little bit. I think there's, there's a heart in our hearts. There's a kind of a quasi heart in our mind, but I think there's a heart in our guts. And that's the feeling part of it. And that's really what we're kind of asking for. That's what we're kind of looking for is that we want it to, to know it in our mind so I can begin to experience it and feel it in my guts. But what you feel is going to follow what you believe in your mind. If you believe you're alone, if you believe you're vulnerable, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel scared. You're going to feel anxious. You're going to feel alone. And so what we want to do is, and that's why we're here, we're, we're battling for your mind. It's that phrase we've liked to use in the past, right? Those three words, truth, trusted, transforms. Right? My job this morning or when Robin or Greg or Josh or anyone who gets up here, Sheila, a couple weeks ago, when we get up here, what we're trying to do is we're trying to convey the truth. The truth of who God is, what he's done, who you are, and what it means to have inside you now. That's what we're conveying, the truth of the new covenant. But then it's on your shoulders now to trust that truth, to place your faith in that. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we're filling the mind with the truth so that with your will, you can now choose to trust. And as you trust, God does this transformation work, which begins to impact our gut impact how we feel and what we experience. But if you're waiting to, to feel it before you believe it, you'll never get there. Because the reality is your feelings will go up and down. They'll change. And so we're, we're called to trust what's true, not trust what we feel. And that's what Sheila did, talked about when she talked about faith a couple weeks ago. That idea of, of trusting what is absolute true and what God has said. But the concern here is, again, is what the serpent is going to lead you astray. The serpent is going to deceive you as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. And what was interesting, what kind of struck me about that is this, this notion, this idea that, that it's not something new. That he goes all the way back to the garden, which tells me that Satan's doing the same thing generation after generation after generation. That there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new temptation. Yeah, there's new technology and there's new opportunities, but at the heart of it is the same lie, the same ploy of the enemy, that same deception to lead you and I astray. See, let's think back into the garden. What really happened in the garden, right? There was Adam and Eve made in the image of God. That's significant. That's important because for Adam and Eve, they probably had questions just like you and I have questions. Questions such as, am I loved? Am I, am, I, am I of value? Do I have worth? Am I, am I significant? Do I matter? Do I belong? Am I accepted? Am I approved? And, and am I safe in these relationships? I say they had these questions because I think these questions are, are, are hardwired into humanity. That Adam had it, Eve had it, and every person since has ever had these questions. But for Adam and Eve in the garden, who was the answer to all these questions? It was God. 
See, if they are made in the image of God, then the answer to those questions were in essence in God, in the reflection of God. And so we might think of it in this way, that, that God became the mirror to Adam and Eve. Now, please understand, they're in the image of God. That doesn't make them God. Does that make sense? In the same way, you, when you look in a mirror, you don't actually see you. You just see reflection of you. Well, in essence, we were a reflection of God in the garden. That Adam and Eve, they were reflecting back to God who he was, but it also can work the other way. And so if Adam and Eve wondered, am I loved? Am I okay? Am I significant? And they looked to God, what was the answer? Yes, I am, because I'm in his image. And so God was the mirror, and they were good. In fact, they were very good, God said. But along comes Eve, or along comes the serpent, sorry. And what was the serpent trying to do? You could be your own God, you know. You don't, you don't need him as a mirror. He, in fact, he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know right and wrong. He doesn't want you to know good and evil. Because if you did, you would be powerful like him and you wouldn't need him anymore. You could be your own mirror. And so Eve, thinking that that would be good, it'd be good to be God. In fact, I might even help God a little bit. Eve was deceived and, and she ate and she gave some to Adam who disobeyed. And together... They disobeyed God. Together, they ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did God promise would happen on that day? They would surely die. And they lose God as their mirror. And so now God can no longer be the answer to the question, am I loved? Am I okay? Am I, am I important? Who's the mirror now? It's, it's myself. It's my performance. It's my talents, it's my, my abilities, my, my, my looks, good or bad. My accomplishments, my successes, my failures. But it's, it's also you and you and you and you and you. You all become my mirror. So, so it went from, am I okay? Look to God, yes, I'm okay, off we go. To now, well, what do I think about me? And what do I think about what I do? And what, what do I think about what I don't do? Plus, plus, what does Norm think about what I do and what I don't do and what he thinks I should do? And, and what does Chuck think about me and what I do and what I don't do? And, and what does Deanne think about me and what I do and don't do? And it goes on and on and on and on. And the, the problem is everyone has different expectations of me. And it's exhausting now. It's tiring to somehow measure up to all of those other identities. And so I have another mirror. I have an identity on my performance, but I also now have to find a new power source because I can't find that power in God. And so Satan, the serpent, offers me another source of power, which is the flesh, my self-effort. Try harder, do more, get up earlier, stay up later, but get lots of sleep. Eat well, exercise. But enjoy some things and make yourself happy and, and strive and struggle and keep working. And maybe one day you'll be there. But like, like this, this carrot that's always just three feet beyond my reach, no matter how far I move, no matter how fast I run, I can't seem to grab hold of it. I'm always left wondering, am I enough? Am I too much? Do I have what it takes? Am I worthy of being loved? And it's just exhausting. 
And so that's, that's what the serpent's deceiving Eve. And, and that's what he's doing to you and I today. Now, to really understand this passage, we're going to have to get a little technical here. So the passage reads that, that Paul's worried that the serpent's going to deceive you and I, the church, in Corinth specifically, but by extension, you and I, from this, in the, being led astray in our minds from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Now, if you have a study Bible, you'll probably notice that the words devotion to are, are in italics. Anyone have that? Anyone see that? Or does no one have study Bibles? All right. So when you see italics in your Bible, that's a, that's a note from the translator saying that word isn't actually in the translation. They've added it. And so the translators, trying to help us understand it, have added some words. And in this case, they've added the word devotion. But really, what, we, what it says in the Greek manuscript is simply the, the simplicity and the purity in Christ or to Christ. But then there's even other manuscripts that don't even include the purity part. It just says the simplicity to Christ. See how it's getting simpler and simpler? See, the concern is that we're going to get distracted from Jesus. That's it. That's, a, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's a simple message. It's elegant. It's powerful. It's to the point. It's, it's Jesus. And the fear is that we would get distracted away from Jesus, away from this, this, this devotion or this, this uh, mindset that is all about him. Now, that word to could be translated also as into. And, and this, this idea of into is, is positional, meaning it's not just this idea of Jesus. It's not just the simplicity of the name of Jesus or the concept of Jesus. It's the simplicity of being in Jesus is what he's talking about. So let's, let's see if we can illustrate it this way, because it's, again, it's more than just a positional truth. It's an actual truth. Now, how many, any parents here of children in the 2000s? Have you heard of the TV show, The Magic School Bus? Miss Frizzle, right? Well, we're going to have our own little magic school bus illustration, all right? Now, the thing about a school bus is when you're on the school bus, when the, when the bus starts going fast, what are you doing? You're going fast, right? When the bus stops, what happens to you? You stop. If the bus enters into a bumper car challenge, what's happening to you? You are playing bumper cars, bumper bus, I guess, right? If the bus drives over a cliff, what happens to you? You go over the cliff, right? Now you're going to hope that it really is a magic school bus. Now, the point being is, as a passenger on the bus, how much did you have to do to go fast, to stop, to enter into a bumper bus competition or drive off a cliff? Nothing. As a simple passenger, what happens to the bus happens to you. What matters now is who's driving the bus. Does that make sense? Well, let's apply your illustration then. In essence, what I'm saying is you and I, when we arrived here on planet Earth, you were born on the Adam bus. Do you get that? Adam is our bus driver. And, and all of humanity is on this bus. Meaning what Adam does is going to have a significant impact on you and I. So when Adam, in that garden, he disobeys God. When Adam ate from that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did we do? 
we ate too. We sinned with Adam, it says. In Romans 5, 12, through one man's transgression, through one man's sin, death entered the world, all of creation. And it entered all of you and I because we all sinned. We sinned in that exact moment. It doesn't say you will sin or you have sinned because it knows what you're going to do in your past. No, it's very specific. When Adam sinned, we participated in that sin because we're on the Adam bus. And so now when Adam sins, the result of what happens is he's now separated from God. He's disconnected to God. He dies just as God promised. What happened to you and I? We died as well. We're disconnected from that source of power because we're on the bus. You didn't have to choose anything. You didn't have to do anything. But being on the bus, what happened to him happened to us. And when he's condemned and when he's made a sinner, the same thing happens to you and I. That's the reality of our situation. So salvation means get off the bus and get on a different bus. And that's what Jesus came to be. Jesus came to be a different bus. Because see, all of humanity, except for Jesus, is on the Adam bus. Whether it's Mother Teresa, whether it's Osama bin Laden, whether it's Adolf Hitler, even Anita, it was on that bus at the beginning. But salvation was getting off of the Adam bus and onto or into the Jesus bus. John 3, 16. We all know the verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes, doesn't say in, it says into, different Greek word. Ah, that caught my eye. Because what he's saying is it's not about believing in the idea, the concept, the the thought of Jesus. It's believing into positionally Jesus. Whoever believes and gets off the Adam bus and into the Jesus bus shall not perish won't go over the cliff, but shall have eternal life. And that's what happened at the moment of salvation, that God took us off that Adam bus and put us into Christ on his bus. Now you might be thinking, did I, did I do it right? Did, 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 uh, how do I know I'm off the bus? That's God's job. By God's doing, 1 Corinthians 1.30, you are in Christ Jesus. It's a response to your faith. The moment you said, rescue me, Lord Jesus, he takes you off the bus and puts you into Jesus but you're on another bus now. And what happens to that bus happens to you as a passenger in that bus. And this is where it gets beautiful. Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has has no one informed you of this glorious truth that when you were baptized, when you were placed into, when you joined the Jesus bus, it says, that you died with Jesus. See, what's happening to Jesus happened to us because we're on his bus. And so the old self, it says in Romans 6, 6, the old self was crucified with him. And that is a glorious good news verse. See, so much of our lives, we've been, we've been trying to fix ourselves. We've been trying to run away from ourselves. We've been trying to hide ourselves. You know what Jesus says? I took care of that old self. That hurt, that damaged that not good enough, that unlovable, that sinner, that person was crucified with me. And I got rid of him. Got rid of your old identity. And then it goes on in verse six and seven. Not only did the old self die so I could get rid of the old identity, but I was set free from sin. Sin's no longer my master. Sin's no longer controlling me. I don't have to listen to the flesh anymore. 
It used to dominate me, but no more. And so I've been set free from my old self. I've been set free from sin. And then in Romans 7, 4, it says that we've been set free from the law. That through the body of Jesus, through the bus of Jesus, so to speak, you died to the law. That, that rule, that expectation, those standards that just beat down on you. It says, you got to do more, Chris. You got to get serious. You got to keep working harder. Gone. Doesn't apply to you anymore. There's no longer a standard, a level of performance, a level of excellence that you need to strive to, to be, you're being judged by or measured by. It's done. You're no longer under law. You're under grace. You're under this beautiful system of what Christ has done for us. And so we were crucified and we were buried. Say goodbye to the old self. Say goodbye to sin and its dominion over you and say goodbye to the law. But then we were resurrected. Beautiful truth, because when Jesus walks out of that tomb, who walks out with him? You and I do. Isn't that glorious? That there's, there's a new Cheryl. That's why we love Cheryl so much, because we see the new Cheryl and who she is with a new identity and a new heart. <laughs> never, never. We see that. That's who she is, born again. A new creation. Not one day, not if she works hard enough. Already, the moment of salvation, you and I are made perfect. You don't live perfectly, but that's your behavior. And that's not what's judging you anymore. We judge you based on what Christ has done. And because you and I are in, in Christ, physically, literally, spiritually, we are new creations. Born again with a new spirit, a new life. And now what gets beautiful is now Jesus can be my mirror again. Right? It's not you anymore. It, it's, it's not about what Sheila thinks about me or, or what Rizal thinks about me or what Michael thinks about me. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm the one that Jesus accepted. I'm the one that Jesus made right and righteous and, and holy. And so he's my mirror and I'm going to fail and I'm going to make mistakes, but it doesn't change my mirror. It doesn't change who I am. I have this new identity. And so I new mirror, new identity, but now also new power. Because see, Jesus doesn't abandon me as an orphan. Remember what he said to the disciples? It's good that I go away. And I'm not going to abandon you as orphans because I'm going to send you another one like me. The Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ. And so through the Holy Spirit, Jesus and the Father now take up permanent residence inside of us. And this is what blew my mind. This is what completely revolutionized my understanding of Christianity, the why he came to live in me. It took me 20 years as a Christian to figure it out. Don't wait that long. Jesus came to live in you, to live in you. Simple. But I complicated it. I thought it was Jesus came to live in me so I could strive and I could struggle and I could do better and I can get serious and I could follow these rules and complicate the gospel. No. Philippians 2. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. It's, it's so simple. We've missed it.
Verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Too often we've read that verse and that work out means get to it, try harder, clean up your act, get better. But really we've missed the verses ahead of that. And the verses ahead of that was have this mindset, have this attitude that Jesus had, which was one of surrender, of letting go of rights and trusting him. That's how we're going to work this out. But don't stop at the end of verse 12. Verse 12 is connected to verse 13. You have to read verse 13. Verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, to power, to make happen according to his good pleasure. So Jesus Christ now has taken up his residence inside of me. And now I have his strength and his power. So now when it comes to, to loving my family, when it comes to dealing with temptation, when it comes to dealing with anxiety and stress, when it comes to dealing with problems at work or relationship difficulties with family or friends, I don't try to do it on my own. Because you know how much I can do on my own? Nothing. John 15, 5, right? That doesn't mean I can't do anything. I could do a lot. But if it's in my own strength and my own power, it's meaningless. It's powerless. They won't experience Jesus. So I'm trusting Jesus as best I know how, being faithful with whatever little he's given me. And I'm, I'm trusting that Jesus is going to show up. That he's going to right now provide the words and the illustrations and the examples. And then when I, when I meet with people, he's going he's to show me how to care for them and how to listen and understand where they're at. And I'm going to just trust Jesus moment by moment. Colossians 2, 6, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, by faith, trusting in him. So walk in him now. By faith. Keep trusting him, Ivy. Showing up that he's going he's to live through you and I. That's what he's asking us to do. That's the beauty of this gospel. That's the simplicity that too often we've got away from. We start adding the rules and the performance and the standards. So that's, that's, we've seen his heart. We've seen what he's concerned about. And now verse four tells us why. For if one comes, he says, and preaches another Jesus whom you have not, who we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which we have not, you, which, sorry, or a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. If you've fallen for something other than the new covenant, other than Jesus plus nothing, you've added a little bit. Jesus plus tithing. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus your, your effort and what you've accomplished. Jesus plus, I'm correct. Jesus plus I'm correct. Whatever you've added to that, it's a different gospel now. And when he says this, you bear this beautifully. The, the word there for bear is an echo. It's the same word that he used earlier when he says, bear with me. It really means to tolerate. And so what he's saying is this idea is that, that you've received this other gospel, you've received this other Jesus, you've received this other new covenant, and you've tolerated it. And that's the problem. That's the concern. That you haven't, you haven't stood up and said, no, that's, that's not true. That's not right. In fact, that was one of the things Jesus said to, I think it was Pernigam, one of the letters in the book of Revelation. 
He says, you've tolerated this teaching of the Nicolaitans and others. And that's his concern for them is that, that over time, as they hear it, they'll slip back into it. As, a, as I'd counsel people, they would, they would come into my office with a crisis. Relationships were falling apart. They, they were struggling to, to trust Jesus. They were, they were struggling in life, maybe anxiety or despair or something in their past. And what we would do at the starting point was always, let's understand the gospel. Let's simplify it. And we'd share this simplicity of who they are in Jesus and who Jesus is in them. And they would embrace it. And they would see victory. And things would begin to change. Maybe not right away in their circumstances, but they would change. They were different. And they were experiencing life and power. And they were over, overjoyed. And that crisis would begin to abate. And so no need for counseling anymore. And so we would, what we call graduate them. And we'd celebrate, well done. We're excited. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And they'd go back to their church. And they'd sit back under that teaching. And at first they'd hear a little bit of law and they say, well, that's, that's not true. I've, I've saw, I've read the scriptures and I, I'm not under law. I'm under grace now. I don't need that ministry of death and condemnation. Thank you, Jesus. And they would reject it at the beginning. But over time, bit by bit, like that little frog in that water that's getting warmer and warmer and warmer, they would end, end up cooked and they'd fall back into those old habit patterns. And maybe six months or a year or two later, they'd end up back in my office again, struggling, tired, because they'd forgotten what they had learned. They'd forgotten the simplicity that is Jesus Christ. And so my, my call to you and I, to all of us, is employ the KISS principle. Keep it simple, saint. <laughs> See what I did there? Keep it simple, saint. That's who you are. Remember who, who you are in Jesus, what he's done to you to make you a new person. Remember who he is in you now, that you have the life and the strength and the power of Jesus everywhere you go. You never have to ask Jesus be with me. Never. Do you know why? He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. You never have to ask, Lord, I just want to be closer to you. You're one with him. You can't get any closer. It's all done. And as we believe that in our mind and we act out in our will that those are true, you will begin to feel and experience it in your gut. Sort of. But that doesn't make it true. It's true because our Heavenly Father tells us it's so. And so let's keep it simple, Saint. Let's remember all that Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for the simplicity that is you in the cross. The simplicity of what you've accomplished as, as you got us off, off the Adam bus and onto the Jesus bus. And there's no other buses for us now. We're done. And we're comfortable on this bus. We get to now rest and enjoy the ride. And I pray, Lord Jesus, now that you will continue to remind us, continue to encourage us and that we would have the courage to trust. Trust something that is so simple yet so powerful about who you are in us and who we are now in you. In your name we pray, amen. 
You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.